Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas debate over which person to interview for the next podcast and all that good stuff so go to facebook type in sustainable self-development or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there and you'll find the sustainable self-development facebook group and you can join also not sure where you're listening to this right now but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms itunes soundcloud podbeam and youtube you can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me so look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes and with that let's get into the show Hey guys, Abel here, and in this episode, I'm coming at you with another radio hour. I recorded one of these last year, and I'm going to be playing some clips to you from some of my past favorite, and I would add underrated episodes. And these episodes have been recorded with three of my most often featured guests. You can even guess who they are. Well, you definitely can because you probably read the title, but they are Dr. Eric Helms, Dr. Mike Isratel, and Menno Henselmans. I have done a couple of episodes with them in the past, and I feel like they have been underwatched. I think to this day, these episodes have gotten around 3,000 views, which is not bad, but pretty low compared to how many some of my other episodes have gotten and how good these episodes were. So I'll be playing to you these clips, which are quite memorable for me. So we will start out with a clip from my interview with Dr. Eric Camps. He was actually not a doctor at the time. We were talking about the question of how to determine for yourself what your settling point is in terms of body fat percentage. And we'll also talk a little bit about, about the recent culture that has emerged in the fitness world, which is wanting to be super lean all the time. On the latter point, I actually don't want to comment too much uh, because I think it's been beaten to death quite a bit on my channel before. Uh, the most notable example of this was the bulking debate that has taken place on my channel between Eric Helms and Mike Isratel, as well as the follow-up episode that I recorded on that. Uh, On the point of determining your body fat set point, I'd recommend to you my episode on body fat set points, where I talked about the signs that one can look for when trying to to determine what kind of body fat percentage or ballpark that of could be appropriate for them. Um, One other thing that I'd like to mention here, and I talked about it in a recent episode, uh, I believe it was with Sotak Andre when he interviewed me. It's on my channel, and this is also linked in the show notes. But in that episode, I touched on the fact that when I stopped tracking my macros, that was actually the first time when I got a real good grasp on where my natural body fat, quote unquote, settling points are. Um, So, you know, now after eating this way and kind of being more in tune with my body, I can clearly see these kinds of cutoff points where really my general resiliency declines in that I'm more prone to just getting hungry to the point where it's distracting me from whatever other thing I was doing. I'm more reliant on piling up on high satiety foods constantly. And if for whatever reason I don't have access to these foods, I notice it quickly. 
On the other hand, I now have a pretty good handle on the points at which I get very robust to changing food environments and food availability. Uh, there often comes a point for me where wh whether I eat my normal 10 a.m.-ish breakfast or I fast until 1 or 2 p.m., almost doesn't matter. And uh, where I'm just becoming increasingly non-excited about the thought of certain foods that other otherwise I love. So, for example, just the other day, uh, someone mentioned to me that, oh, whatever, an X bar or pub, they serve the best fries in town. And, you know, I love fries. Like when it comes to junk foods, I'm a very simple man with simple needs. And salted fries with ketchup, that's like heaven to me. But I heard fries being mentioned and I was like, meh, who cares? Now, it's obvious that these things move on a spectrum. So it's not like at, say, 8% body fat, I need to intravenously dose myself with broccoli and spinach, otherwise I starve away. And at 10% body fat, I'm oblivious to the thought of French fries. It all moves on a spectrum and it's a matter of a number of variables interacting, such as my body fat levels, the incoming calories acutely, as well as the incoming calories on a chronic level. So for example, have you just finished dieting, for example, or have you been eating in a surplus for a while? Uh, the general palatability or the appeal of the foods that surround you also matter, your personal psychology, how much do you like eating on the whole, how busy you are during the day. So obviously these will all create a big soup with a ton of ingredients. And then when we look at this end soup product, we will say I'm at or above or below my set point. And I would say that the best definition that I currently have for a settling point is the point where food related decisions are only in control of your day-to-day -day life to an extent that you're comfortable with, which is a very vague definition, but I think if applied with enough self-awareness, it is actually quite helpful. So for example, for me, when I'm forced to construct my day-to-day -day nutrition in a manner that I'm constantly forced to be surrounded with highly satiating, low-calorie foods, I often need to pack food with me or I need to actually question whether I should be out of the house for like six to eight hours or something because I know that the types of foods that I can grab from any random grocery store and just eat quickly will make it very difficult to control my food intake throughout the day. That's annoying. That's distracting. It's making it more difficult for me to get things done. So I would call that point below my settling point. But, you know, if, for example, I was a sultan, for example, from some Middle Eastern country, and I always had a crew of whatever servers following me everywhere, and I could get my giant plate of fibrous veggies and lean protein with a snap of a finger, then all of a sudden I would probably feel like my settling point is quite a bit lower. So, you know, it's not purely physiology, not not by a long shot. It's an interaction of physiology, psychology, and the practicalities of life. So that would be my input on this one briefly. And with that, let's get into this clip with Eric. To this call, I asked a couple of people in, in a few communities if they had uh, some questions to you. And we had a couple of good questions, but uh, basically, I could uh, categorize them into two big categories, and one of them was related to body fat percentages. And, um, you know, a lot of questions regarding like, you know, can you stay at 8 to 10% body fat? What's a good body fat percentage? All those kinds of things. And I guess uh, a more general question that could be helpful for a lot of people here is when you have a client or you are trying to determine this for yourself, how would you determine if 
it would be beneficial for you to try to get a bit heavier, maybe carry a bit more body fat in the off season, or whether you, you're an Alberto and it's appropriate for you to stay, you know, single digit body fat in the off season. How would you, how would you determine that? Well, the, the cool thing is, is that your, your brain is heavily linked in body, body weight regulation. You know, if you like the, the biggest sensor for leptin in the brain, you know, so, I go completely behaviorally, you know, um, if you are still food focused, you're too late. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's that simple. Assuming everything else has kind of been sorted. Like it's not just immediately after competition where you're going to potentially be food focused for an extended period, maybe three to four months before you feel normal, almost regardless of your rate of weight gain. Um, almost regardless. But so, yeah, most of the time it's, it's not, you know, a lot of people go, Oh, can I, I've heard it's between eight to 12%. I'm going to try eight. And they may be someone who's kind of behavioral settling point and where they're not food focused to 16%. And they're going to be struggling for a long time until they accept that. So I think it's simply a matter of, of basically seeing at what point are you not food focused? What point yeah. can you not worry yeah. about it? Where whatever behaviors you've gotten from your time in fitness are enough to sustain your weight and you're not constantly thinking about eating. Um, because if you are, that's an issue. It shouldn't be ignored or just seen as just a character trait. You know, I've talked to some people who are like, no, nah, man, I'm always hungry. That's just the way I am. And I go, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's possible. I'm not, I'm not going to completely discount that. But a lot of times it's because of people don't know what's the chicken and what's the egg. You know, they, they feel like they have to constantly restrict themselves because they're always food focused. And if they don't, they'll get obese, but maybe it's actually constant, constantly restricting themselves that is the reason they're always food focused and they've never really given them a chance, given them, given themselves a chance to just walk around a little bit heavier. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's unlikely that you're just that person who will just eat into oblivion, even though you regularly train, have a good idea of calories, have a high protein intake, eat healthy, etc. Um, there are the people are out there who will need that, but it's, it's certainly not normal. Yeah, and 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 one thing, uh, if I may uh, drop here, and and it's it's merely an observation, and I, I guess I'm just I just want to drop it here because I find it very interesting, is that I f I find that your I mean it's funny like your generation of bodybuilders I mean you're only slightly older than I am, um, but like you know you Alberto Lane and then you know guys before you like Jeff Alberts. What I see is that you've all had these periods earlier on when you just had these long off season where you were kind of heavier, maybe admittedly heavier than you should have been. Um, and you were carrying more fat than probably was, um, was needed, but you just didn't care about it that much. And, um, and that's when you made some of your best gains. And like my generation, even though I'm only slightly, slightly younger than you are, but you know, we grew up on the social media, you know, intermittent fasting, stay shredded all year long. And we are the ones who end up spinning our wheels for years on end and not making any real progress. So I, I don't know, do you, does that resonate with you? What I'm just saying? I think yes, to, to a certain degree. Um, I think people who are, you know, like the stereotypical thing back when I was early coming up, we're talking when I first started lifting weights in 2004, was that there's the guys who go on the dreamer bulk and get too fat, think it's all muscle. And then there's the guys who never make any gains because they always want to have abs. Um, I think it was never, it wasn't as socially acceptable to be in the latter camp um, before when like in, like in the mid two thousands, early two thousands, there wasn't like a strong <laughs> outlet for that. Um, 
and then I remember when like, you know, Martin Birkin and Lean Gaines and, and other guys who kind of had these popularized approaches to, you know, maintaining a low body fat percentage with less effort. Like once they got credibility and, and this isn't a knock against them, I think they've done some good work. It's just often taken too far by the the followers rather than the actual person. Um, I think once that became socially acceptable and there's an outlet instead of all these, you know, big roided out bodybuilders telling you, quit being a pussy, just, you know, eat more food, don't have abs. You know, that was basically, I mean, that was, that's, that was like basically half of the T nation articles and elite FTS articles that I grew up on, you know, um, yeah. were, I remember an article from on, on uh, T nation from Dave Tate saying having trouble gaining weight, will get a large pizza and dump olive oil all over it and just eat it all. <laughs> so like, um, which is insane, you know, when you think about it, but, um, if anything, there was this, this culture in, in the, the mainstream online bodybuilding community of if you're not gaining weight, you're not making gains. And if you can't gain weight, suck it up and eat more food, you know, which was the prevailing thought. And I will say that now with some of the leadership and quote unquote fitspiration and the constant uh, eye of, of social media always following you and everyone posting, you know, filtered pictures of them in their best lighting and posed shots that there is now a, uh, a huge culture around always being aesthetic, you know? And I think the downside to that is that it, it asks a lot of people to, to try to do that who don't have the experience uh, or the foundation or the, the, the genetics or psychology to do that. And uh, yeah, they, I think there's more, more wheel spinning from that. However, I mean, like, Alberto and myself, like Alberto got up to 250 pounds and he competes at 165. So you know, he's had to spend a couple years cutting to get back down to, you know, a reasonable body fat percentage. So there's, there's certainly extremists on either end. Neither one's good. Um, but, uh, but certainly I, I think the one thing you can be sure of is that if you're eating everything in sight, you're probably not holding back, you know, your lean body mass gains. It may become a big pain in the ass if you ever want to actually diet down and get on stage and you have to lose half your, your body weight. But um, you know, that that's just depends on which kind of problem you want to have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I guess everybody has their own biases. It's just me like looking back at, you know, my past couple of years, I, if I could advise my past self, I would have probably said that dirty bulking is not good, but it probably is still better than just being obsessed all the time on being super lean because Dirty bulking, at least you, yeah, as you said, you're not holding back on, on the I would agree. So, and, so. and you're less likely to develop some, some not-so-healthy relationships with food in your body. Um, you might yeah. be just not happy yeah. the way you look in the mirror uh, and, and, you know, have to diet at some point. But I, I would agree. If that's, that's the lesser of two evils, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and just to give people some perspective, like from all the bodybuilders that you're working with, like what would be, you know, some of the higher body fat percentages that you, that guys maintain in the off season uh, and are still productive and, and you consider that as, as yeah. And, and you know, the funny thing is, um, body fat percentage, like if you measure it on DEXA on average, it tends to be higher than other methods, you know, and, and that can freak people out. But like if what we, you know, the, the internet consensus of what different body fat percentages are based on visual assessment, I'll use that standard that we all kind of have an idea of where like an ab cage is probably 15% and, you know, full bone yeah. abs is 10%, that kind of thing. This is for guys, of course. For women, you kind of have to add like basically, you know, another, another 5% to whatever I say. I have, I've, I've seen a fair amount of my clients at different times 
be in the, in the range of 16 to 20% and that'd be not an issue. You know, mm-hmm. um, it does mean that we might have to do a mini cut sometime like, oh, you want to diet for a show in six months. All right, let's do one month mini cut. Now we'll go three months, do another one month mini cut, get you down to like, say, 15 percent and then, you know, bring food back up and then start our diet six months out. And that's not a big deal. You know, uh, it just it just means you have to plan a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's it's not like I keep all my my guys at eight to 12 percent and all my gals at, you know, 16 to 20% body fat all year round uh, or when they're not competing. It's, it's much more based on what they're comfortable with and when they're not food focused and uh, wherever that is. And for some people that is on the higher end of what we would consider a healthy body fat percentage, it's still normal. Yeah. Yeah, And, and um, I mean, uh, just to, just, just to give people some perspective on this, like, uh, like I just had this discussion with someone not that long ago that like, it used to be the traditional, like stay somewhere between like 10 to 15% in the off season. And with the rise of social media, this kind of changed over time to like eight to 10. And if you're over 10, then you're kind of getting. No, I, I totally agree. And um, yeah, people have these warped ideas of, of what body fat percentages mean or look like. Yeah. I, I always, I, I never have people, I my, my clients, they, if they want to go get a DEXA or, or get dunked or, or get pinched, that's fine. But I never ask them to do that because it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, is where they're comfortable with what they look like, um, whether that's a realistic, healthy body image to have. Because uh, sometimes, often more, more often than not, they, what they desire is, is not a realistic goal to, to maintain. Um, and then, you know, so a lot of the work is on being able to accept that walking around at 15% is fine. <laughs> and yeah. uh, then just focusing on, okay, so are you constantly thinking about food? Are you struggling to hit your macros or not go over them? You know, if we, if we didn't have some system of tracking, would you gain 10 pounds? Well, it's too lean. And, you know, and, and there's, there's a level of denial that comes with that, but you can only be in denial with that so long. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many competitors I've seen for like three, four years would just try to maintain too lean and eventually just go, it's not fucking worth it. I don't care. You know, and they, yeah. they just let themselves get a little heavier in the off season. And that's, I think that's a good thing. That's what should happen. Um, ideally it won't take that long, but, uh, but it's hard to, it's hard to get over that when you've got all the pressure to, or the perceived pressure to, to maintain leaner than you should be. Okay, so thank you, Dr. Helms, once again. And with that, let's get into the next clip with Menno Henselmans, where we are talking about the outlook we have on dieting and whether you're viewing dieting as a temporary phase of suffering or rather as a lifestyle for the long term, where you adopt behaviors that you can potentially keep up for the rest of your life. And here, Menno outlines his general view, which is that behaviors that you do should be things that you can foresee as things that you could keep up for the rest of your life. Now, as we kind of go into it a little bit in this clip, this is a concept that to some degree is by definition non-applicable since dieting where you're establishing a hypocaloric state is obviously something that you will not be keeping up for the rest of your life. I mean, if you're listening to this, odds are that you have ambitions to build muscle and to recompose your body over the long term. So you want to spend the majority of your time at least at maintenance, sometimes at a surplus, and then intersperse these periods with brief bursts of hypocaloric eating to make it possible for you to eat again at a surplus. So given that reality, if you will, the whole concept of 
employing sustainable diet practices is flawed. However, I think that Menno is very right in that the behaviors that you employ during dieting and those that you employ during maintenance or bulking should be just shifts in degrees of severity of extremeness within the same set of behaviors. So for example, during maintenance or bulking, you might be eating veggies, fruits, lean protein, and full fat variants, some added healthy fats, and some extra starch sources from, you know, potatoes and rice. And then during cutting, you might be eating more veggies, more fruits, more lean protein, less of the full fat variants, and maybe no added fat sources and less of the starches. You know, is there a difference between the two approaches? Yes. Is one more restrictive than the other? Yes. But the general setup is the same, which is you're eating a nutritious diet from wholesome, nutritious foods. And in one instance, you're reducing the variety within these foods. So when the diet is over and you no longer need to establish negative energy balance, the only change you might be making is adding in more of these other foods. Now, Menno draws the line here with the inclusion of cardio and that being a non-sustainable diet practice. And you know, I'm not quite sure. If I come from the previous definition, which is that you want to employ the same general behavioral principles and only shift the severity to which you're employing them, depending on your goals, then including cardio could also fall under this umbrella. So if the default behaviors are already set in stone, which is that you're going to the gym maybe five days a week, then adding in maybe 15 to 20 minutes of cardio after your training sessions as a means of burning some extra calories, and then at the end of your diet, you simply stop doing those extra 15, 20 minutes. I'm not sure how problematic that is. I think the real issue where we're getting here, though, is that if the only two states you know are a complete lack of structure and mess, and that's the behavior that you have when you're not lean or being super organized, structured, and regimented while you're getting lean, then you have no practice and developed skill set in long-term normalcy, which is what's needed to maintain your body composition or to further improve your body composition by going into a slow gaining phase. So yes, if you're overhauling your entire life structure to get lean, which is something I have done tons of times in the past, then the question stands for a good reason, how are you planning to maintain the results? You know, do you have any idea how a normal day will look like in your life? On the other hand, and this is also something we'll touch on here, if you're getting down to 6% body fat and that level of physical state is not even close to what you'll want to maintain in the long run, then employing some pretty extreme strategies is probably fine because you're doing something non-sustainable to achieve something non-sustainable. So if you dieted down to 6% body fat for a bodybuilding show, then you'll potentially want to be in a thousand calorie surplus after the show for a few weeks to get yourself out of that state as soon as possible and to re-normalize your hormones, your hunger signals, and your entire physiology. So at that point, basically everything you do is non-sustainable, if you will. If you it's like going on a swimming marathon race where you're swimming in the ocean for like eight hours. If you start swimming like crazy from the get-go, then that won't work out because you're in a marathon. However, if you see a shark's fin in the nearby, then you need to start swimming like crazy until you reach the nearest rescue boat and you don't care about sustainability in that moment because you just need to survive. So this is what we'll talk about here. And with that, let's get into it. And I think lifestyle change is a word that used to have very good connotations, but it is commonly 
uh, now seen as something that is more like a hippie uh, alternative medicine kind of uh, vibe. Um, yeah. that doesn't have any scientific support, but it is really, really true. It's a cliche because it's true. Lifestyle change is really what it takes to get lean and stay lean. For example, if you're doing, you're relying on an hour of cardio a day to get lean, you have to think um, and ask yourself, is this something you're going to be doing for the rest of your life? Because if not, and this is what it takes to get lean, how do you plan on staying this lean? Mm -hmm. Same with anything else in your diet. I think many people uh, are concerned too much with uh, acute choices, choices in the moment, like do I eat this or do I eat that? And they don't think in terms of a lifestyle, like how is my life when I eat this versus how is my life when I don't eat this? And it's a lot easier to make lasting changes if you think of it in terms of a lifestyle than um, which you don't. And in general, in terms of food choices, I mean, rationally speaking, you can think of a food as either worth it or not worth it. A food has certain benefits like the pleasure, the pleasure it gives, uh, the protein content, uh, fiber content, these you could see as benefits. And then negatives would generally be caloric content um, if it's not satiating. If it has trans fat that is harmful to your health, these kind of things. And you weigh these, as an, an economist would do, and you weigh the costs and the benefits, and you decide the food is either worth it or not worth it. So from a rational point of view, it also makes sense to uh, restrict certain foods. The problem comes when people take this to extremes, and they um, are what um, is now called in psychology a restraint eater. So they don't... Um, they don't see it as a choice anymore. They think of a diet uh, where a lot of people go wrong. For example, Atkins diet, they have good foods, bad foods. And they think of them that way, not because they have decided for themselves these foods are worth it or not worth it, but because it is part of the diet. And that defeats the whole purpose of uh, diet as a lifestyle change because actually the word diet, which is now seen as like this period of suffering that you have to go through to get the results you want, actually comes from uh, Greek and Latin, the Aita, it meant way of life, which is, of course, a completely different connotation than what we now uh, have with the word. The problem comes with people that don't see it as a choice anymore, uh, whereas you should, uh, you should not think of, you know, you cannot eat McDonald's, but you should think of it as McDonald's to me is not worth it. And this also corresponds with research uh, finding that if you... Uh, make it a habit in people to, before they eat something, ask themselves, think of the caloric content of the food. And this is something I also uh, implement with a lot of my clients and tell them to do. Before you eat anything, especially if it's not part of your plan, consider what is the macronutritional content. And then this spurs you into thinking about costs and benefits. Because a lot of people, they have this idea that when they stop thinking about their diet, it's all reins are loose and they get, you know, the screw it effect and they make a lot of choices that they later end up regretting. So, um, some things can be worth it. I'm not saying you should never have McDonald's for some people. It may be worth it. They may like French fries so much that they're worth fitting it into their macros. It's worth, uh, consuming some trans fats for, and they accommodate the rest of their diet to uh, fit this in. I think for most people though, it will be very difficult. Uh, to remain six-pack lean and eat McDonald's with any irregularity. So as long as you keep in mind that it is a choice, it can actually be very helpful to think in terms of food as worth it and not worth it and not be uh, 
not enjoy the flexibility you have too much. Because there is also a lot of research showing that people actually um, fare better on preset meal plans. And if you look at actually successful bodybuilders, athletes, people that have uh, are actually successful long term, and I define that in terms of leanness as maintaining your six pack year round, not just com- having competed or having dieted for a show or whatever, and you've got a six pack, and then the rest of the year people don't see. You don't post it on Facebook or Instagram or Facebook, but actually you're still kind of chubby and you just get lean once a year. But look at people that actually maintain a very lean uh, body fat percentage year round. They are almost always on set meal plans. They have little variety in their diet. Uh, many of these clients, they, they are actually concerned with this. They ask me, is it okay if I eat the same stuff every day? Well, as long as you cover all nutrient bases in your diet, that is perfectly fine. There is no need to... You know, make it more flexible, induce variety, don't fix what isn't working. What you just said about the temporary suffering period and the long-term perspective, many of the claims of the flexible diet proponents is that if you have a set meal plan, you have little variety in your diet, then that is by itself not sustainable because you want to live life and you want to be exposed to all kinds of stuff. I think you yourself mentioned that you want to try every food on the planet. And I think that's where a lot of people can get into trouble, that they get into a routine. And yes, when you really create an environment for yourself, when you kind of isolate yourself from external kind of distractions like other foods, like social events, like going out, then it's easy to maintain a six-pack. But if you also want to live life, that's when it really becomes a balancing act of um, being flexible, having a flexible attitude towards food, but also still having that structure based mindset um, in place. So what do you think is a sweet spot between being structured, you know, having having a meal plan, having a routine, but also being able to be flexible and saying what you're saying that I still want to try every food on the planet? Yeah, I think it's good to distinguish here between the type of lifestyles that people live. So my case is probably not a very good example. Uh, I actually eat at libitum, which means I don't track my macros the majority of the time. Uh, but the same thing still apply. I still have a lot of rules. And if I, uh, for example, try something that I know is more caloric or less satiating than my typical foods, um, I will see if this uh, matches with higher energy expenditure, which is often the case during like holiday periods and um, where you're traveling, um, or at least when I'm traveling a lot, I walk a lot, uh, ride bicycle a lot uh, when possible. Um, so I can factor that in. And then I make a strong distinction between things that, I can eat like as a lifestyle and things that I will try once. And I always think very clearly about, is this worth it for me? For many people, if you're an office worker, for example, then routine and stability are definitely your friend because uh, when you get home late at the end of the day, you are what researchers call in a state of ego depletion. And you do not want to be concerned about, you know, thinking uh, in terms of variety or, uh, mixing things up is this the worst time possible to do this. So even if you plan on doing these things, it should be key, key words being a plan. And that is also for when you're, uh, you have social events, you're eating out with friends. I think that should be very doable to fit into a fitness lifestyle. Um, you, stu- you should still have uh, certain guidelines that you live by and making conscious choices in these scenarios. And these can be the same kind of principles you apply 
uh, in daily life as in social eating, I think the crucial thing that uh, people do wrong is that they go either all in in terms of I eat like a robot, food is fuel, uh, I will skip all uh, dinners with friends, or they go to a completely flexible dieting route and then think, you know, uh, I should enjoy life, so I'm going out with friends, and that means I do everything they do, and I'm going to just drink a lot of alcohol and drink whatever they're drinking, even though I don't really like wine or alcohol, and I'm still going to eat, you know, consume 1,000, 2,000 calories in the form of alcohol, then my judgment's going to be completely impaired, and I'm going to make a lot of choices that the next day I end up regretting. I think right. all of these things are uh, very hard to teach people. Beforehand, you have to teach them uh, how to plan, make sure they make deliberate choices, and then you have to compare uh, body composition data before and after. I find that really helps to um, make an objective, retrospective um, conclusion about whether it was worth it or not. And that's also what I always ask people if they went on a holiday or had a cheap meal or, or something. I, you look at the data, you see what kind of damage was done, how much fat they lost or how much weight they gained, and you ask them, is, was this worth it? And without being judgmental at all, you just objectively ask them, do you think this was worth it? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You can also do this um, for pretty much any kind of uh, food that you try. And this really facilitates making more conscious choices. So the, I think the solution here is to maintain certain principles. The principles are fixed, basically, but the diet choices you end up making aren't necessarily um, all or nothing. Like one last question on this this uh, outlook, like lifestyle way of looking at things is that um, do you think that to some extent it is a matter of just being cognizant of the dangers of being too extreme and just be really conscious about how you are changing your behavior once, for example, a diet is over. Because, for example, I, I've heard you mention that you have this strategy that you call keeping it bro. So, for example, when you're dieting down, then, yeah, you're saying, okay, I'm going to give up the enjoyment of food for this period of my life. I'm just going to look at food as fuel. But obviously, you have to let go of that mindset once the diet is over. So, do you think that if you are very careful and, and you're practicing a lot of self-awareness, then... It can work to some extent. Yeah, the key difference here is when you're dieting, uh, what I generally recommend is that people think in terms of uh, exchanging foods for leanness. So that is an, a strategy I employ with a lot of clients, which is uh, what you were referring to. And basically that means that certain foods, um, as your energy intake goes down across a cut, which is often the case when you're not gaining uh, muscle so fast anymore, you know, you're pretty advanced training, you're not getting muscle so fast anymore that your metabolism increases throughout the diet, but it decreases because of adaptive thermogenesis and a lower body weight, then you're generally going, not going to be able to fit the same foods into your diet anymore as before. And this is where the, the traditional eat less advice fails because people don't make these choices. They stick with the same food choices they have and try to eat less of them. And as the diet progresses, uh, there's less fat tissue, less leptin secretion, less appetite suppression. They get hungrier and hungrier and energy intake goes down and down and down. And they still try to fit the same highly uh, caloric foods like bread or bread with peanut butter, those kind of things, into their diet as they did before. And it just ends up being a negative spiral of more and more inhibition of their appetite, living with hunger uh, and craving these 
uh, foods that they have now a lot of difficulty eating until they're satiated. So I think it is crucial to make changes there in terms of the food you eat. And when you are talking about a natural trainee that undergoes cut and bulk cycles uh, and stays within like six pack lean level year round, which is, I think, what most um, natural trainees should aspire to stay within like a seven to 15% body fat range where you never lose uh, your abs. I think that is very realistic uh, for most uh, men. Then uh, you want to have certain foods uh, that you don't necessarily exclude entirely, but that are depending on your current body fat percentage. So at body fat percentage X, I can in- I can eat these kind of foods. For example, I know that um, whole eggs and avocado, they're, they're okay until um, about contest level. And after that, I have to be a lot more stringent. Uh, you know, things like uh, when you're going really deep into contest prep, um, I often still try to do that at limitum as much as possible. Then at some point, you're going to end up with a very limited food selection. Uh, but that is fine because I know that these foods are still okay for me to eat and there are still a lot of foods that I can eat again when I'm bulking. Now, right. when you are taking this to an extreme level, um, which like contest prep, and you're going below this body fat percentage that you end up, um, that you know is sustainable for you, then by definition, you are also, um, you can also employ non-sustainable diet practices. And that's where keeping it broke can be very helpful, depending on the person's mindset. That is the strategy I employ to indeed think of food as fuel. And you basically give up the pleasure of eating entirely to get um, to your contest level leanness. That is something I only recommend if you're dieting uh, below your sustainable body fat percentage. Because then you can apply also cardio, for example, unsustainable diet practices. Until you're at that point, I think a lot of people look too much towards the people that go to these extremes and try to fit them into their own lifestyle. Uh, Until you're at that point, you should be thinking a lot more about gradual, sustainable changes. All right, so thank you for that, Fermeno. And with that, let's get into the last clip today with Dr. Mike Isratel, which is on the process of reversing out of a long, grueling diet. So here, I bring to your attention my episode where I talked about ending a diet successfully. It is linked in the show notes below. But basically, the key takeaways are be slow and gradual with the inclusion of highly palatable, super tasty foods and only start to increase the average level of tastiness, if you will, of your diet once the foods that you're currently eating are just almost too satiating for your own good. So if you're already sick of eating veggies, fruits, meat, eggs, and fish, and things like that, and you're just full all the time from them, then start adding in some slightly tastier foods with higher calorie density. And over time, maybe you can even add in some fun foods and treat foods. Anyway, this is elaborated on in quite some detail in the Ending a Diet episode. I encourage you to check that out if you have not seen that yet. And Mike really beautifully breaks this process down here too in the usual manner, which is funny, illustrative, and is just a pleasure to listen to. So let's get into this clip with Dr. Mike Isratel. So when you are stopping a diet and you're in a super hungry state and you're reintroducing back to maintenance. Um, There are a couple of realizations that have to be understood and accepted in order to generate a logical framework based upon uh, upon which you're going to move forward. One of the pieces of framework is that you're going to want to eat lots of food 
and you're not really going to be able to get full uh, very easily. Fact number one. Fact number two, hyper palatable, very the most delicious, crazy food that you want. Its relationship of fullness generation of satiety of or palatability relative to its calorie load is going to be really, really shitty. Uh, the shittiest because these are the foods people use on a mass gaining phase when they literally can't cram any more food down. Like you can always eat a little bit more Taco Bell or McDonald's, but you, you know, just chicken and white rice. At some point you're just like, there's no way I can eat any more of this shit. Right? So these foods are literally designed to have this ratio of palatability to calories. That's like egregious, but that's exactly what you don't want. So if you're looking to fill up on cheeseburgers, in the post-dieting phase, you are looking at a fool's errand. Right? It's just not going to be possible. A slight complexity, but it turns out to be a benefit in this case, is what I can term here um, like a hedonic staircase. And work with me here. Like palatability staircase or hedonic staircase. Here's the deal. One of the biggest things you look forward to after the completion of a diet is the return of food as a pleasurable thing. Particularly with the milieu of hormones that you're experiencing at the end of a diet, you can't wait for food to bring you pleasure. Right? I mean, this is like, if anyone doubts this, then they simply have never done a fat loss diet. There's no point discussing it with them. Right? But as soon as you've done your first fat loss diet, and if, if, it was, if it was done extremely enough, then you know exactly what we're talking about. So everyone's on the same page. Um, you can't wait to make yourself happy with food. But the thing is, is that um, normally if we're not in a very um, altered psychology post-diet, let's say we're just normally maintaining and we decide to make ourselves happy with food, we have to reach food, – food, food's happiness, ability to make us happy can be ranked kind of like on a staircase with lower steps to higher steps. And we usually – um, are kind of in the middle of that with our normal foods. So we have to reach for the very top of the staircase to make ourselves happy with food. So for example, like if someone's like, ooh, um, let's have some fun tonight. Let's eat something delicious. And you're like, okay, what do you want? Do you want like just chicken and pasta? Most people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's not good. That's like worse than the average food we eat. Like it's not even flavored. And you're like, okay, I messed that up. Sorry. How about some really awesome lobster or sushi or steak, some gourmet food? And now people are like, ah, that's the stuff, right? That's the most delicious, most hedonic food. Normally, that's the only kind of food that really gets us high, so to speak, from food, right? Nobody, like if you're on a mass-gaining diet and someone posts their Instagram post and they're on a diet and they're like, got some chicken and broccoli today and it's more than usual. I love it. Look how delicious it is. Like you look at the picture, you're like, that's, that's not delicious. That's ridiculous. That, that's disgusting. You couldn't pay me to eat any more of this shit. I'm tired of it, right? So only the most hedonic food normally works. But here's, and, and so here's the problem. Most people, when they end a diet, what have they been fantasizing about the entire time? The most hedonic food, because that's like the ultimate sort of situation where you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to finish my diet so I could get this maximum huge nuclear explosion of pleasure and just get to the best food right away. And it's true. If you do indulge in that kind of food right after a diet, it's going to be the best tasting food you've ever eaten in your entire life. Unfortunately, it's going to take you down a road where you get fat as hell and the entire purpose of the diet is just completely unclear. So that's not an option. The good news is 
steps on that hedonic staircase that are usually below where you're standing are now all above where you're standing. At the end of the diet, your solo on that hedonic staircase that's anything versus your hypocaloric diet is a step above. So my huge recommendation is this. Start on the lower steps and slowly work up. What's the lowest step? It's really simple. More of the same boring foods you were eating on your diet, period. And if your diet is down enough, that is a super welcome, super awesome, super happy thing. Like when you finish a diet, normally you have 50 grams of carbohydrates and 40 grams of protein, 15 grams of fat. If you just double the size of that meal, let's say, you just double the size of half of your meals, then all of a sudden that's a whole lot of pasta and chicken and broccoli and that stuff fills you up. You can't wait to eat it. It's amazing. And you're sitting there in front of the TV going, oh my God, this chicken and broccoli is amazing. And people are like, what the hell is wrong with you? You're like, I just dieted for four months. That's what's wrong with me. And they're like, so you're really enjoying that. You're like, yes, I could eat double this if I, if I had to. Perfect. The good news is, is here's we have two birds with one stone. One, we're super happy. We're getting what we wanted, which is the hedonic pleasure of food. But we're also not getting super fat because it's very easy to control the amount of this low palatability food. We don't, you know, there's not, you're not going to eat an extra 5,000 calories of chicken and broccoli. You're just not, right? So it's easy to stay within limits, yet fill up our hedonic, um, uh, you know, cup, so to speak. Now, after a couple of weeks or a couple of days, depending on how fast metabolism is just, let's say after uh, two weeks, just for convenience purposes, if the only change you've made is you're eating more of this quote-unquote clean food. I hate to use that term, but you know, healthy, um, bodybuilding type, low palatability food. After two weeks or so, your metabolism is now upregulated and also like the food's just not entertaining you as much anymore. And you're starting to recover psychologically. Like you're not fantasizing about food all the time. And also your metabolism is sped up. And now you can actually raise your calories a bit more. So what you do then is you start to eat a little bit more uh, of the foods that are still, let's say, low in calories and low in fat. And only, I only say low in fat because that's a really great way to keep foods low in calories. But that are a little tastier than you usually eat. For example, uh, flavored Greek yogurt or low-fat uh, graham crackers, um, frozen yogurt, right, things like that, which are not um, low-fat, uh, low-calorie ice creams like Halo Top or Enlightened or something like that. These are the kind of foods that if you got right after you finished your diet, you would have just eaten so many of them, you would have like shit blood or something like that. But now, because you're kind of used to phase one, these foods are an extra hedonic boost, and then they're appropriate at that phase. And after maybe four weeks or so, you can now start to have your first real, actual, super indulgent cheat meals. But here's the deal. By the time you have those indulgent cheat meals, they're still super fun. They're super awesome. But they don't completely throw you for a loop and you don't end up eating the entire table. You're comfortable with just one cheat meal because you've been letting the gasket out slowly, so to speak, and you're not that bad off anymore. And, and, and I just want to finish this analogy with one more really critical piece of information. If, if you go straight to the super hedonic foods right away, the backtracking is almost impossible. Right. As soon as you spend a couple of days eating cheeseburgers and cookies and ordering pizza, like the tastiest shit with the most calories, if someone's like, all right, you've had your fun. Now let's go back to just normal clean eating, but more food that no longer offers you any kind of pleasure. It's a step down the staircase because you've been hanging out the top now. You don't get any pleasure out of that kind of food. What you're going to do then is try to eat it for a couple of days, get super bored and then go back to satisfying your hedonic 
sensation, your hedonic needs with, again, those cheat foods and, again, be over calories and, again, get super fat. So a really, really big important point here is to, in some, in some sense, dope out the hedonic pleasure, the palatability of food, start with more of the less palatable foods, increase the palatability and calorie load of the foods slowly as your body adjusts, which means two things. One, you recover well and you don't gain an excess amount of weight. And two, you continuously have more and more fun as the diet ends. There's never a bad time. There's never a shock where you have to go back into jail, so to speak, back away from the foods you love. So I'm actually advocating it for individuals that need this because um, some people can get away without it. But for individuals that are very sensitive to this rebound stuff, like if you finish a bodybuilding show, a really big diet, do not go and get a cheat meal. Don't do it. Go and get more clean food, eat that, keep eating it. Two weeks later, start to spice up your diet with frozen yogurt, low-fat ice cream, that sort of thing, and only maybe two to four weeks after the end of the diet, start peppering in real cheat meals. For the last two diets that I finished, I had my true cheat meals something between two and three weeks after I finished the diet. And it, these have, diets have been landmark phases for me in which I regained much less fat than I had on previous diets. Yeah, um, uh, this this was brilliantly laid out. And, uh, and, and I think another big consideration for people to keep in mind for why you sh probably shouldn't go for the crazy calorie-dense, hyper-palatable stuff right away is because once you're finished the diet, simply because a lot of the satiety mechanisms that are uh, kind of the, the way your brain perceives satiety is, is through a variety of mechanisms. Probably some of it is insulin mediated from the carbs you're eating. Probably some, some of it is uh, fat mediated. And when you're on very low calories, those satiety mechanisms are obviously suppressed. And that's why people load up on really low calorie, high volume stuff, because that's the only form of satiety that they can really get at that point is just filling up their stomach. And probably at that point, you're really reliant on high volume foods and you're still in that state when you're finishing your diet. So even if you are eating very calorie dense, hyper palatable stuff, you're still requiring that high volume component from your diet. And if you're doing that with super high calorie foods, then that will be very problematic. Would you agree with that? Exactly. Exactly. It's like you've been training, in a sense, to eat the most food possible, and all of a sudden, your training is unleashed onto the world of high-calorie-dense, palatable food. It's the worst possible combination. Like, I have eaten amounts of food post-diet um, in one meal that, to me, right now, at the top of a mass-gaining phase, even though I'm 20 pounds heavier or 15 pounds heavier, seem unbelievable. Like, I just can't repeat that. <laughs> um like if you took me to that restaurant now that I, you know, I ate just like two huge pancakes that were the size of, you know, a, each was the size of a serving plate. I ate both of them and I ate my regular meal. If you'd said right now, hey, Mike, let's do this now, I'd be like, I eat like a quarter of that pancake and throw up everywhere. This is not going to happen. So we're really primed to be eating machines as soon as we're done with a diet. And that is precisely what we have to engineer our diet to not allow us to do. So, you know, people say like intuitive dieting, listen to your body. Always listen to your body. Just realize it's not always saying the right stuff. It's like listening to your children. You got to listen to your children, but a lot of times they say completely dumb shit that's just really not a good idea to do. Yeah, exactly. And 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 another critical component um, that uh, you you touched on, but but I, I want to take or bring it home even more is that. There is a time component to all of this as well. So um, one reason why it's probably good not to have a 10,000 calorie cheat meal right after your show is because 
even if you are, I mean, you could make the argument that, okay, you're eating 10,000 calories on one day. That's a, maybe a 7,000 calorie surplus, but it's not the same as having maybe a, a 500 to a thousand calorie surplus for one week or for 14 days. Um, so even if like, it, it doesn't quite work out meth wise that way, it's, there are certain mechanisms, satiety mechanisms that, take your body some time to to get back in order so that's why it's probably a better idea to take it a bit slower oh my god yeah by a long shot so i'll tell you this um huge cheat meals paired with periods of sort of paying for the cheat meal by continuing a deficit right because that's what you're going to have to do right um that is the best way to promote continual hunger and essentially disordered eating pattern um, if you want to continue to want cheat meals, just have huge cheat meals once or twice a week and be in a slight deficit or pretty, pretty sizable deficit the other days of the week. And you will literally continue that pattern. It is a self-continuing pattern because the cheat meals give you that bit of hedonic pleasure. And then the days afterwards rebuild that desire for that pleasure. And it gets to be this this uh, self-perpetuating pattern. It's a nasty pattern. The way to squash long-term hunger is to continue to eat day in and day out at either maintenance or especially a slight surplus. After four weeks of eating every day at a slight surplus, it actually gets annoying to eat at a slight surplus, and you're officially recovered. You actually know when you're you know when you're officially recovered from dieting when someone's like, "Hey, do you want to go out for a cheat meal?" And you're like, "Ah." Like you, can, you would never say that in a million years a week after dieting. But if you're like, I don't know, can I just eat normal food and not eat a lot? People are like, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, nothing anymore. But it, it's one of those things where people say like, okay, I know I don't want, I don't want a big surplus, but I'm just going to run the math and I'm just going to have a 10,000 calorie meal one day. And then the other you know, six days or whatever, I'm just going to cut my calories by a shitload. You are engineering disordered eating patterns. That's exactly what you're doing. It's a disaster. It, it fails almost every single time. It's just going to drive you insane. And there's, it doesn't promote recovery. Here's the really unfortunate part of this. So at RP, we work with, we've worked with like, you know, literally thousands of people so far. And something that our, our diet coaches perennially see, uh, they see this very often in female dieters, is, you know, when people say I've been cutting for like two years, but I haven't lost any weight, my metabolism must be broken. It's not that metabolism. Metabolism works just fine. What they do is they, they are on a hypocaloric diet that entire time, but it's, it's pulsated with big cheat meals. So they're dieting really well for six days and then the seventh they go nuts and they repeat. That kind of structure keeps them in that loop. It keeps them going in that loop. It's a really, really bad idea. Um, and, and, and they'll end up uh, continuing that process because they don't have, unfortunately, they're not in the circumstance psychologically to will themselves into a dedicated surplus. Because what they'll do is as soon as they do a surplus for two or three days, they'll start to feel guilty that they're getting fat and they'll start to cut again and they'll rebound and cut and rebound and cut. And if it's no way to live, but if you do live like that, that is not balance. That is the opposite of balance. It is a completely, um, just completely jarring way of going about things, and it leaves you in a permanent state of hormonal and neuroendocrinological imbalance. You're basically always in a starvation mode or getting back to one, and that's really bad, and it just really causes you to have no good results. 
but plenty of suffering for months and sometimes years on end. Yeah, that's that's hundred percent right. And uh, I, you posted one time on Facebook, which I, I think that quote sums it up perfectly. That if you are alternating between binging and low calorie periods too often, then you're getting all of the negative uh, effects of low calorie dieting and none of the benefits of high calorie dieting. So that that's perfectly true. That's it. It's really unfortunate, and a lot of people get caught in it. Man, I could listen to this guy endlessly. He's just one of those people who, even when I don't agree with him, I just like listening to him. Such a great speaker. This was not one of those moments, by the way. I agreed with everything he said here 100%. So, guys, that was it for today. I highly encourage you to go ahead and check these episodes out from which I play these clips to you. They are all linked in the show notes, of course. You will get a ton of value from them. I can pretty much guarantee it to you. And my question to you today is... What are your biggest takeaway lessons from these clips? All right, with that, see you next time. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.